pray together. Our Lord and our God, the one who loves us and has demonstrated that love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, our Father, this morning as we focus our thoughts on the God who is love, who has demonstrated to us in a most extreme way what love is. As we focus our attention, Lord, I pray this morning that you will enable our hearts to receive and to welcome the truth. I pray, Father, for those who are gathered here or in the hearing of this, whose hearts are hurting and broken. because their lives are in situations where love seems very scarce. I pray, Father, that the reality of your love will encourage and strengthen and release and rescue people from the wilderness of feeling unloved to the promise of God's love. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Perhaps the most misrepresented of all the doctrines of God is the love of God. I think it's the doctrine most abused in our world. Our world pictures a subjective God whose love endorses anything and everything that makes them happy. because that's the loving thing to do. And people will say, the God I believe in, who's a loving God, wants everyone to find joy in whomever and however, in loving whomever and however. And he also doesn't want unwanted children to live if that would make me happy. Donald Carson, in his very helpful book, entitled The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, writes this, I do not think that what the Bible says about the love of God can long survive at the forefront of our thinking if it is abstracted from the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the providence of God, or the personhood of God. 
to mention only a few non-negotiable elements of basic Christianity. The result, of course, is that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. I'm not so sure it's only the culture that purges the doctrine of the love of God from anything that's uncomfortable. I think we, as well, God's people, have some pretty skewed ideas of what the love of God really is. So what does the promise of God's love mean to believers? Because today we want to look at what it means to move from the wilderness of feeling unloved, and I, I, and I also put in brackets being unloved, being unloved by the way, by people, not by God, into the promise of being loved by God. What we know is often shouted down by how we feel. Do you agree? Particularly in this area of God's love. And many who struggle with the love of God have also struggled because of a background, a family background that has struggled with the concept of love. My prayer and goal for this time together is really found in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. I'll read it to you. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now notice, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more. Put it in the context here. And all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's my prayer for you this morning. The, Paul's prayer for all believers, my prayer for you, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and other believers and my prayer for you is that today you may grasp the greatness of the love of God. I, would, I, I want to make a statement to you that I hope is helpful. The saving love of God necessitates the sanctifying love of God. And this is where we get into challenges with our feelings and the love of God. The saving love of God necessitates the sanctifying love of God or the transforming or changing love of God. What it takes from God's love to change us, which isn't always comfortable, so the love that saves us also shapes us, which is sometimes very emotionally confusing. Now, I, I want to give you a quick overview, a quick chart of truth that you can look at this morning and, and, and get a picture, hopefully, of some of the reality of our feelings versus truth. We all agree that God is good, yes? And we agree that His purposes are good, Yes? But the situation we are required to bear within that reality may not be good, yes? <laughs> a little less 
a little less uh, commitment. Now, I want to I match it to another reality of truth. God is love, yes? All of his purposes toward his beloved are loving, yes? Say it with enthusiasm. Yes. The situation we are required to bear may not feel like one loved should be in, yes? Now, here's the problem. We regularly start from the bottom of these lists. We start with, we're looking at our situation, we're thinking about our situation, and we start to draw conclusions about truth from the bottom up instead of the top down. Critical, I mean, if, you know, if, if anything can help you, this should help you. God is good, and God is love. No matter what situation you are in, that does not change. That God is love and that God is good never changes regardless of the situation you're in. Now that's a starting point for us because we war with our feelings. We look to the bottom of that list and build our thinking from there. Don't do that. Start from the top of the list and build your thinking in every situation. I know God is love. And I know God is good. Now, so how I feel must give way to what is true. Because it is the truth that sets us free. Sets us free from our feelings. In order that we can embrace what is true and benefit from it. Because if we languish around in our feelings, particularly in this great doctrine of the love of God, we run the potential of missing out on the benefits of God's love in the most needed times. Okay. So, God is committed, by the way, to his long-term eternal purposes for us. And that, that may very well be interrupted by short-term discomfort. Okay, so the Bible in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 makes it abundantly clear to us that this is how God has showed love among us. This is how God has showed love among us. If I were to ask you, you know, how, how has God showed you love? This is your answer. This is how God has showed love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is how God has showed love to us. I'm gonna come back to this at the very end as we transition to communion. But let's set it up that way. So I wanna want look very quickly with you this morning at three amazing truths concerning you and God's love. Turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Ephesians chapter one, please. Ephesians chapter one. I wanna read a, a most outstanding text to you this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, we're just going to look at verses 4 and 6, 4 to 6. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. That's some heavy doctrine stuff here, but let me unpack it for you. 
The first of these amazing truths that we can grab right out of this text is this. You and I are providentially loved. We are loved providentially. Now remember what we, we understood providence, providential to be last week. We understood it to be God's directive, protective care of us. You are loved providentially. You may have lived uh, with lifelong insecurities about your own value or your own significance in this life and in this world. But this should help you very much with respect to that. Because unlike so many who have struggled with this sense of needing, uh, seeking to gain approval from people, uh, needing to feel loved and all of that, the truth of the matter is for the believer is this, we don't earn the heavenly Father's love. He chooses to grant it to us. He chooses to give it to us. He chooses to set his affection upon us. That's an amazing thing. And it's not because of anything we've done. It's not because we're lovely or lovable. It's because he chooses. When were you and I first loved? I'm speaking to believers now. When were you and I first loved? Well, according to this and according to other places in Scripture... We were first loved as we were included in Christ's crucifixion prize. The song we just sang, one of the lyrics says, why should I gain from his reward? His reward is us. The heavenly father awarded Christ us. Say, what are you talking about? Well, look at here. When Jesus was questioned about the relationship of, uh, of he and the Father. In, and John records it in John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And, and John re- records again several chapters later in John 10, verse 29. Jesus saying, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. Paul writes to the Ephesians and explains how we were given to Jesus. It says in verse 4, or verse um, uh, 5, just before verse 5, in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons Through Jesus Christ. In verse 4, for he chose us in him. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus. Because of his love, because of God's love, there will always be a people of God. That's what Paul's writing here. But only because of Jesus. We were placed in Christ. That's why he stresses in these three verses, he chose us in him. We were adopted through Jesus Christ. Um, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one, meaning Jesus, he loves. And when did all of this happen? He tells us in the text, before the foundation 
of the world. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, the, the, the message here is there existed a God who chose to have an eternal relationships with people. For no other reason, Paul says, than because of his love. In love, he predestined us to be a, the reward of Christ's crucifixion, placing us in Christ before we were even born. That's why Paul can write to the Romans and say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You and I weren't there at Calvary, but we were there at Calvary because of the truth that God placed us in Christ before we even existed. Is this too much for your mind space? I mean, is this, this is mind-boggling. I realize that, but that's what this truth is all about. I mean, for any of us who are believers to feel the least bit insecure about our lives, this is meant to chase that away, to dispel that away. If any of us are wondering about the value of our lives, the purpose of our lives, who we are to God, what God thinks of us, what, what, what value we are to God, this is to chase that away. In that love, we, by the way, bear responsibility of living a holy and blameless life. Do you see that? He, in, for he chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to, to be holy and blameless in his sight, to live for him. So, by virtue of being gifted to Christ, who is the chosen one, who is literally the elect one, This is all about Jesus that Paul's talking about and our inclusion in Jesus. He's the elect one. Just as Israel was the elect of God, so is Christ the elect of God. Christ is the chosen one of God. And we were added in Christ into this great family of God. So we are in not because of us, but because of Jesus. Do you see this? This is about Christ. People will say, well, what about me? What about someone online? Well, how can I be in this? How can I be in on this? Follow Christ. Believe in the Lord, and you will be saved. So, we are purposed, our transformation. This is, this is critical to understand the nature of God's love for us, which is, which is absolutely amazing that he chose us in love, but to be holy and blameless, which means there's some work to do. The love of God not only brings us into salvation, but it also re requires our sanctification, our growth. There's work to be done. The shaping of us to be holy and blameless is also immensely a part of the love of God. That's why the chart that I'm saying, God is love, yes, but sometimes the situation we're in feels like we aren't being loved. But in truth, it's part of the blameless holiness shaping 
fitting us for glory, life that God is doing in our, in our work in our lives. So you are loved providentially. Secondly, turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. John of the disciples writes the most about love and the love of God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 18, I want to read the text. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And then in verse 10, he defines love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Underline that verse. So we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I'm going to stop there. There's so much more we can talk, but I want, to, I want to focus our thoughts right here. You are loved not only providentially, but you are loved perfectly. You are loved perfectly. I mean, the question comes up, what is love supposed to look like? What is love supposed to be like? And, and God answers the question through John's writing here, this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he initiated love for us. That he gave love. He gave his love. He loved us, but that he loved us and sent his son as a, says in the text, atoning sacrifice. The word is a propitiation for our sins. In other words, that word means that Christ because of the love of God, turned away the wrath of God that was upon us because of our sins. Atoning sacrifice really doesn't tell anybody much of anything, but propitiation certainly does. That word means averting the wrath of God, turning away the wrath of God. This is an important position to be in. To have the wrath of God diverted from us. And we are loved perfectly by God uh, because God is love. So God's expression of love toward us is perfect since he's the source of love. 
We have the people floating around our culture saying love is love. That's the most absurd statement I've ever heard in my entire life. God is love. God is love because God is the source of love. God is the inventor of love, if you will. He's the only one that can define love for this world. And and if we are loved by the very source of love, it ensures to us that there can be no better love showered upon us. Let me think about it. If the author and inventor of love loves you, there's no better love out there to be showered upon you than the love of the inventor and source of love. That's what this text is telling us. That's what's assuring us. The world simply says love is love to cut God out of the equation so they can define subjectively what they think love is. It really should be translated as lust is lust because that's the only reason people use that phrase. Because God is love. And that makes it possible, because of his love, makes it possible for people to actually live. That's what he says in this text. And that's why in verse 12, it says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is, the word is complete here, but it means perfected in us. Complete's an okay translation, because perfected means to be made complete. It means, to be made, it means to be brought to its intended purpose. The love of God that he has granted to us is intended to be made perfect in us. The perfect love given to us is to be made perfect in us. How does that happen? Verse 16 tells us, by relying on the love of God, the love that he has for us. Your love, the love that God gives to you is made complete, is made mature, is brought to its intended completion as you rely upon the love God has for you by loving one another. Do you see this? That's why in verse 7, verse 11, verse 12, so we don't miss it. John's writing it so many times so you can't miss it. How is love going to be perfected in me? How am I going to grow in love? How am I going to experience the full benefits of God's love for me? John says it three times. John 7, John verse 11, 12. Loving one another. We are loved by God perfectly in order to love one another so that love, the love of God in us, might be brought to its intended completion, its intended perfection in us. God is turning us into people who love like him. This is the amazing and immense reality of salvation. Regeneration heals us so thoroughly inside that it enables us to express love fully to one another on the outside. Now, I know that, that many of you are saying, wait, wait a second, I'm not there yet. I understand this. I, I don't think any of us are necessarily there yet. The point is, this is an active work of God in our lives, perfecting love in us. 
And the more you rely on the love of God by loving fellow believers, the more perfect the love of God is being made in you. This is not a mystery, this is not rocket science. You want to experience the perfecting love of God? Love your brother and sister. There's a, another immensely important section to this that I just don't want to leave because so many of us miss the fullness of this perfecting love. Not only do we, is our love perfected in our love for one another, but the perfecting love of God in our lives drives fear out of our life. Do you see the section that John gives to verse, in verse 18? There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. If I were to ask most of you, if I were to ask, say to you, what motivates your good behavior? What motivates you to keep the rules of God? And I, I, know, this, I know this to be true because these surveys have been done multiple times. The vast majority of Christians say, I keep the rules because I don't want to get in trouble with God. And that's the wrong answer. You, you'll, you'll never, ever experience the perfecting love of God in your life if you allow that to be the motivation for why you, why you keep the commands of Christ. Because I don't want to get in trouble with God. That means that you're still living in fear of punishment. And part of the problem is how most of us were raised and all of that. That's, you know, there's punishment attached to disobedience. And I don't want you to get the idea that there aren't consequences to sin, that God doesn't work on areas of discipline and disciplines us in our lives, but he doesn't punish us. Paul... All over the scriptures, there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Love and fear are not meant to cohabit in the Christian life. The Bible's filled with fear not. Fear is supposed to be gone. We're living in fear. Believers are living in fear like other people. We, don't, we're not, we, weren't, we weren't saved to live in fear. And the love of God is intended to chase fear out of our lives. Fear has to do with punishment. Is God going to punish you? He's not going to punish you. He may discipline you for your good. That's not punishment. He will not punish. Perfect love drives out fear. So keeping commands is the evidence that I love God. Jesus Record, it's recorded in John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So our, our, motive, our, our keeping of the commandments is, our, is the evidence, Jesus says, that you love me. That's, that's the evidence that you love me. But the motivation to keep my commands has to be from the realization that you, God, love me. I'm, I'm seeking to keep the commands of Christ because I know he loves me. And I love him. 
and I want to please him. I'm not worried about punishment from him. I want to please him. So I'm freed by God's love. And, and, and the problem is if we continue to allow the motivation for us to keep the commands of Christ to be on the basis of our fear of punishment of God, we will actually become more rebellious. We become rebels. I don't have time to go into it, but if you read Romans 7, Paul gives the explanation for that. He says that the commandments, the, he talks about in Romans 7 that, that the, you know, keeping commandments out of fear of God resulted in me remaining rebellious and a rebel. The reason so many Christians are rebellious and rebels is because you are trying to keep the commands of Jesus Christ on the basis of fear and not on the basis of the fact that he loves you. If you keep, if you keep the commandments on the, of Christ on the basis of the realization that God really loves you, you will become less and less rebellious, less and less a rebel. You can chew on that in your DCs tonight. Talk more about that because we got to move. And by the way, what if I'm not feeling it? What if I'm not feeling the love of God? Listen, ask the Holy Spirit to help you because the Holy Spirit is responsible for helping you to, to sense and experience the love of God. But fellowship with God's people. Well, nice, nice people who are God's people. Loving people who are God's people. People who will love you. Not crusty, cranky, annoying Christians, but nice Christians. The Christians who are on the way to perfecting the love of God, those Christians. Because that, those Christians, loving you, will enable you to be experiencing firsthand the love of God, which will enable you to grow and, and will help you um, to, to, uh, to yourself be motivated to love. Okay, let's wrap it up with Romans 8 really, really quickly. So you're loved providentially, you are loved um, perfectly, and Romans 8 tells us that you are loved permanently. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are loved permanently. The question arises, I mean, this, this, this is the real feeling text right here. This, this is the one where the rubber hits the road. I don't feel loved. Uh, there's trouble, there's hardships, there's persecution, there's famine, there's nakedness, there's danger, there's sword. I don't feel loved. If I feel separated from the love of God, can anything, he's, Paul says, really drive a wedge between God's love and me? And the answer, of course, is no, nothing can. God, because God, first of all, is not emotionally vulnerable in the way he loves. That's a beautiful reality. Unlike us, we are so driven by our emotions. God is not emotionally vulnerable like us. Trouble shaping, you know, you know, many of you are parents presently or have been parents or whatever. And I know the hardest thing for me was when I, when I was disciplining the kids to actually continue 
the sentence. I wanted to, I wanted to let them off. You know, because you know when you, when, you, when you discipline the kid, you're always like, you're grounded for the next 15 years. And then you go away and you think, oh man, like that was a little bit of a long sentence. Because we were kind of in emotion and we, we, in a rash moment, throw out some sort of discipline and, and we want to back away from it. God's never emotionally like that. He, he, he actually is not vulnerable. God will not fall prey to his feelings to release us from the life-shaping work, the heart-transforming work that he's doing in our lives, no matter what, even if it's trouble and hardship and, and persecution and famine and nakedness, he will not, because of his love for us, release us from any of these things that are heart-shaping for our good and his glory. He will not. And God is not fickle or whimsical in the way he loves nor can he be intimidated or threatened because his love is completely connected to all of his other attributes. God's love is never disconnected from God's holiness. God's love is never disconnected from his will. God's love is never connect, connect, disconnected from his wrath. God is always connected fully to all of his attributes. So, Paul gives this list who? There's an army of nasties listed here. Can these things separate us from the love of God? Trouble, the harshest of life's pressures. When you've been abused or perhaps you've lost someone important to you, that's what trouble is. What about hardships? When you're confined to an oppressive situation, squeezed in, it's a dead end. You can't see anything good in your future. Can God's love be separated then from you? Or persecution when you're intentionally targeted for harm, for belonging to Christ. Or famine, doing without, or nakedness, completely destitute. Or danger, Imposed by the adversary against Christians. Wait a second. A God of love lets us go through these things? Paul says, yes. 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 Paul's been through them. Paul's writing on the other side of much of this. And some is yet in front of him. Danger imposed by the adversary against Christians. Sword. Life-threatening violence as prophesied in Psalm 44, 22. We're like sheep... Considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For your sake we face death all day long. Yep, that's us. And, and then I won't even go into, I don't have time to look at all of the others. A situation or a reality, present or possible. Powers, circumstances, created things. There's a lot of things lining up in your life that would give you the impression that you can be separated from the love of God. It's immensely comforting to know, beloved, the immensely comforting, the, the immensely, immensely comforting nature of this promise is, is the promise of being loved it doesn't depend upon you and me. God takes that upon himself. I, I don't have to keep God loving me. He does. And he promises that nothing can get in the way of that either. 
So what is for our good is our friend or ally. What is bad is conquered. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And both are dominated by the loving God who can and does use both to marvelously fit us for guaranteed glory. This is kind of the, the, uh, the practical answer to the questions that people had in verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And people were saying, like what? What about trouble, Paul? Yes. What about hardship, Paul? Yes. What about persecutions, Paul? Yes. What about nakedness, Paul? Yes. What about famine, Paul? Yes. Anything you can name, height, depth, width, length, principalities, angels, demons, all created things. Did he leave anything out? I don't think so. All of them are seeking to wedge into your heart and convince you that God doesn't love you. And Paul says nothing, none of these things can separate you from Christ, from the love of God in Christ Jesus who called you into his family before you even existed. There are many separations that occur in our lives. God simply will not allow his love to be one of them. Isn't that a great truth? Beloved, live in this. Live in this. Father, thank you for this truth. And Lord, as we now really take ourselves to the central focus of your ultimate love for us, I pray, O oh God, that you will settle our hearts, lift them out of the wilderness of our feelings and bring them into the central reality of truth that Jesus Christ gave his life for us because he loves us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Among the parting words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven, before he went to the cross of Calvary and ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. And I've told you this in advance so that you won't be surprised. It doesn't mean that I have left you. It doesn't mean that my love has been withdrawn from you. I have overcome the world. And you are more than conquerors through Christ. So, beloved... We are loved by the Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gave his life for us in order that we might be able to love one another and thereby strengthen our brothers and sisters in their troubles and hurts and pain that they might experience the love of God and that God's love might be made perfect in us, completed, accomplish its intended purpose. I urge you and encourage you to keep your eyes fixed, not on the waves of trouble that come your way, but on the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for you. Our Father, 
Thank you for this incredible truth that you have lifted us out of the wilderness of feeling unloved. And in some cases, Lord, there are people here who are are experiencing not being loved by friends or family. But the truth of the matter is that anyone who is in Christ Jesus is loved by God and nothing can separate them from your love for them. And may that love sustain and carry them because it's perfect love, providential love, and permanent love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.